God's miracles are the fact that we don't give up, that we show up, that we continue to love, that we continue to forgive, and we continue to move on, and we continue to laugh and have joy and celebration in the midst of lament and mourning, and we get up in the morning, and we say we're going to do this all over again, and we hold each other's hands, and we walk together, like, that's God's miracle showing up every day. Hi, friends. Welcome to a special quarantine episode of The Protagonistas. I say it's special because it's the first hour and a half long recording I've ever posted. But my conversation with Irene Cho was so good, I didn't want to shave it down. Plus, I figured we have more time at home to listen. In today's episode, Irene and I chat about her Pentecostal upbringing. Working through the ways faith that was taught to us has hurt us, made us feel shame that we didn't need to feel, and even how, in the midst of that, we can find gratitude when we look back and reflect and see where God was at work. Talking about Pentecostalism, Irene and I also chat about the supernatural and the ordinary and how they exist within and alongside each other. Toward the end of the episode, we have a powerful discussion about colonial thinking and the disembodiment that occurs in much of our westernized faith. We wrestle with the question, What if we really, truly believe that God's spirit is within and among all things, as we say we believe, but oftentimes don't really embrace? How would that change how we practice our faith? And I'm also trying something new. I've decided, thanks to the inspiration of Andre Henry and his Hope and Hard Pills podcast, which you totally should check out, I've decided to start posting discussion questions along with every episode. Questions for you to chat about with your friends or small group or just to chew on on your own. I'll be posting them to my public Facebook page, which you can follow at facebook.com slash Hopefully we can have some good discussion on there. Anyway, hope you guys enjoy the episode and that you're staying safe at home. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonistas. conversation yeah Um, i'm super excited to chat i have been wanting to um have you on here for a bit and i'm glad that we have actually been able to connect more before even having you on here it's been so much fun and you have been one of my favorite quarantine text buddies (laughs) (laughs) ditto all the dittos (laughs) (laughs) laughing about just yeah being home and Yeah. All the things. (laughs) So, um, yeah, Irene, if you want to talk to us and talk to listeners a little bit about who you are, um, your background, your spiritual background, where you're from, all of that information. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm excited to be here and share a little bit about my story. I grew up in predominantly what would be considered an Assemblies of God slash Pentecostal type of church environment. The first church where I got saved and came to know Jesus when I was in elementary school was like a different denomination. I think it's CMA, Christian Mission Alliance um, denomination. And so now that church has ended up, it wasn't this large, but now it's one of the largest Korean immigrant churches in Southern California, um, down in Orange County. And my mom actually was the organist or the pianist, and 
she did not grow up a believer and then had a massive conversion experience. And so started having me go to church with her. Is this after you were already born, like that she had this experience? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes. I I was very young. I think like when she got into church stuff, I think I start, I was like in second grade and then started attending church with her. And then we went to summer camp and had this very experiential moment in the Holy Spirit prayed in tongues very briefly, all of that um, type of thing. And then by fifth grade, my parents decided to separate and get divorced. So my mom and I, we moved to the East Coast. I was in Los Angeles and we moved to the East Coast in New York, you know, and there was just a lot of (laughs) transitions happening. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in upper elementary school, uh, getting into pre-adolescence and uh, like, huge shift of moving from sunny Southern California, where it was very diverse, Mm. to a school district that was 85% Jewish, very, very, very wealthy. We were not, you know, predominantly Jewish, predominantly white. Everyone is starting to develop physically. I'm Korean. I already also have like super like super genes that make me look younger so when I was 12 I looked like I was five you know (laughs) like it was not a a helpful situation for me and my mom I think in her journey didn't go to church at that time because of shame and disappointment and failure and all those things and I was not interested in going to church because I was just pissed off at God I mean Mm. it was a daily I think interaction I still prayed to God, but it was more like yelling at God and Mm -hmm. being really like angry at God and telling God off and really telling him, you know, what my opinions of the situation was and, you know, how I was just so upset and disappointed that God didn't show up, you know, all the things, Mm -hmm. all the laments um, that a 10 year old can have Mm, an 11 year old can have to God. (laughs) Um, Probably looking back, it's probably very Charlie Brown esque type of, you know, (laughs) situation. And um, we ended up from New York, which was very difficult again, the whole situation. And and our school, it was one of the top public schools in the nation. Um, Mm. So very competitive, but it was from seventh grade to senior. high school so you're just mixed in and and by eighth wow. grade you know we're all going to parties with the seniors and there was drinking involved and and I didn't really get that involved in all of that um mm. because I would just I wasn't really in the popular quote-unquote popular in crowd but it was still a lot of social pressures that you're just right. trying to navigate through as a, again as an adolescent and preteen um and as a teenager so then from there, we ended up moving to Philadelphia um, right after ninth grade, going into 10th grade. Um, and my mom found a home church there, which uh, was very Assemblies of God, very Pentecostal. Okay. And Philadelphia, for all intents and purposes, was really life-saving. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in my high school, I found a very solid Chinese community. Um, a group of friends that I felt very comfortable in. It was just like a whole world of difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, competitively strong academically, but not so much so that it was like paralyzing. And, and most of the whole town we lived in, um, although I wasn't 
still like in the, you know, I was very like in central middle class, pseudo lower class. Um, but like everyone around me was like that, you know, so they they were well off folks, like very upper middle class. Um, but like, whereas in New York, everybody was looking forward to getting their own BMWs and baby Benzes by the time they were rolling out at 16. Um, in this new high school, it was very, like if you got a new car, everyone mocked you. It was mm. very like third generation car passed down to one another, even though it wasn't blue collar, it was very frugal, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't poor, but a very frugal, academically strong middle class. Mm. And then my church ended up being very in the city, um, very much connected to urbanness. So a lot of my friends who were in the church environment were lower class, blue collar, um, immigrant church setting so I had these really interesting juxtapositions and yeah. yet both both elements were super life-giving and super formative for me um in in all of that and a lot of my spirituality was absolutely rejuvenated in this church um, yeah. I had a ton of spiritual encounters you know with the Holy Spirit um really rededicated my life to God in the midst of all of this um, you know, we had lots of Friday night services and in Pentecostal church tradition, um, at least for Korean immigrants, um, we did like all night prayer vigils all the time. And, you know, just very dedicated, very, you live your life at church kind of mm. situation. Um, and at this and time so, you were like, you were totally engaged with that. Like you were feeling yeah. it, you were, okay. Absolutely. Um, and it, it was really interesting because I definitely was on the trajectory of trying to figure out what college I wanted to go to and what my career was going to be and had kind of come to terms that I felt this conviction. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be the next Connie Chung, um, you know, and for those of you who are listening, she was a very, very popular <laughs> news anchor in the <laughs> 70s and 80s. Um <laughs> And, you know, I wanted my own penthouse in New York, et cetera, type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was growing in my spirituality uh, so much so that even in high school, in my high school, everyone knew me as like the church girl. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and it wasn't embarrassing. Like they were, even if my friends weren't spiritual, because really none of them went to church with me, um, it was, they still respected me because I wasn't like this weird, you know, <laughs> yeah. I only wear white tops and khaki pants kind of person <laughs> um so like pretty normal and definitely still cuss a lot and all these things but they they still knew that my dedication to god um and, and all of that was there so even at the reunion everyone when they found out i was in ministry they were like oh yeah that totally makes sense <laughs> that falls right in line with how you were like in high school um and then so it was really interesting because from my desire to be a journalist I, in high school at, at one of the services, I was praying for my family because my dad was a Christian, but then had really walked away from God. So he had a lot of life circumstances and stuff. So I was really praying for my family and I received my calling from God so directly. Mm -hmm. um, Can you explain that? Like describe you receiving your calling from God? Or yeah. It was kind of crazy because, um, so I was praying and again, if you've grown up Pentecostal, you'll know, but we do a lot of crying out, a lot of praying out loud, lots of 
worship music, dark rooms, lots of tears, like a whole environmental thing that happened mm. in that kind of environment. And so I was praying and God, for whatever you could say, leaned upon me. I, I experienced it. I heard it directly, but the words were very visceral and very mm. clear. Mm. If you give your life for me, I will save your dad. Wow. And by life, it wasn't, I'm giving my life to love God because that was already happening. It was, I'm going to go into ministry. And I said, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not in a plan. I don't know if you got my memo, God, but it's like, no. <laughs> and that's I kept praying. And then it happened again. Exact same words. If you give your life for me, I will save your dad. And I said, wow. Was this like no. right immediately? Or like later on? Very, no, like 10 minutes in, oh. I kept praying. And it was uh-huh. like 10 minutes later. And I was like, I told you, no. <laughs> so, and then another like 10, 20 minutes later, it repeated again. If you give your life for me, I will save your dad. And I said, okay, I'm literally going to stop praying. <laughs> I got up and left the room. Oh my God. <laughs> so I was like, this is not in the plans. I have a stack of college applications. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and she was like 
so reactive to it in such wow. a strong way. I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to be talking to her about this. Yeah. Um, Were you expecting that or was that a surprise? I was. I don't know what I was expecting. I think mm-hmm. I I was still very unsure for myself as well. And mm-hmm. I was just throwing it out there to see what kind of reaction I would get from her. Okay. Um, I do love the knife I, detail. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> um, and so I, from there, again, such a rare moment in my life, I started calling up schools and asking for college catalogs of Christian schools and the more I prayed about it the more I I just knew okay this is what I have to do um and then a few months later I started filling out my applications and my mom we were at the dining table again (laughs) um and we were eating and she said so whatever happened to that you are going to think about going into ministry thanks Mm -hmm. and I said oh I'm gonna do it and she said she was about to argue with me and she felt God's presence behind me, wow. like arms crossed saying, if you challenge her, you're challenging me. Whoa. What are you going to do? And she said for the first time in the 17 years she raised me, she felt extremely small in the room. Mm. I, I got so large because God's presence was so large in the space. And she was dumbfounded, literally. So she she was like, okay, and didn't say anything. And I thought that was that. And she had gone back and prayed and remembered, actually, my dad, when he was younger, before they were married, had confessed to my mom that he committed his life to go into ministry. Um, mm. And so my whole calling is so tied into my great-grandfather and my grandfather and my dad. Wow. Um, it's this long, very long history of the pastoral lineage um, in my family. And my mom said as she was praying, she got conviction that God was honoring my dad's commitment and promise to God um, Mm -hmm. that he didn't fulfill. He was honoring that through me. Um, Yeah. And so it's like, thanks dad. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. Um, (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. But it's so funny because every single personality test that I take, everyone that I took throughout college, you know, it was, I would have been made, basically made a terrible journalist. And Mm. every personality test was like parishioner or pastoral work or social worker or whatever. It was like, I was made for this, right? Wow. That was, that was, you know, really interesting. And there were, it it was just so uh, fascinating space because there was another pastor my mom invited him to try to convince me to go to regular college and then go to seminary and again as a 17 year old I was just I've never been like this but I was like why would I waste my time you're you're asking me to waste my time and not do the things that I'm going to do anyway so I don't understand what kind of counsel you're giving me and I'm just never like that right (laughs) um so then I ended up Interestingly, because my dad was still in Los Angeles, I moved from Philadelphia to Los Angeles um, and chose Viola, which, um, you know, some of your listeners may know, but it's very evangelical, very, not very, it's somewhat conservative. I mean, there are many more who would be considered more conservative than Viola was, especially at the time that I went, Um, but it was very evangelical. Mm -hmm. And... um, 
even my choosing of Biola felt very God-led. Um, mm-hmm. I came at, to Cal- visit California during February, which is usually flood season. Um, at least it used to be before global warming started messing everything up. And so the two college campuses I tried to visit, we couldn't see the campus because of the flooding. Oh, wow. One of them, I got a 24-hour like stomach virus bug that I, I couldn't see the campus because I was vomiting all over the place. Oh my gosh. And then when I got to Biola campus, it was raining that morning. And I kid you not, we drove on campus and the sun broke out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was so <laughs> weird. <laughs> and the thing is, Biola was my last choice because my mm. mom said, put it on the list because we had a pastor in their team come through our church in Philadelphia and she had such a good impression of the young people who came through they were doing this like worship ministry um like concert tour thing across the country so she's like they went to Biola and they were really great and I was like I don't want to go to Biola I want to be by the beach (laughs) I want to go to Pepperdine or I want to go to whatever um which is ironic because Pepperdine wasn't as good of a school back then I really should have maybe gone Pepperdine now that I'm looking at (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> putting it on my CV. Um, but yeah, I ended up going to Biola and became a Christian ed major. And it was so great. I loved, I loved every single moment of being at Biola. Like the professors I had were amazing. You know, all the questions I had growing up were answered within the first year of wow. my freshman year um, of like why things were it was very not fundamental I had I had professors that ranged from you know I mean none none were really progressive progressive Mm -hmm. but we had you know my poli sci professor he was a democrat he was the actually only democrat on campus Mm -hmm. um professor wise but he was the mayor of La Mirada and his class was government class we took the first day we walked in he said, he posed the question, do you think Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat or you don't know? And we were to stand in the room, which side we were to take. And then we spent the entire semester going through the gospel and going through policies wow. of like various different government policies That's and amazing. comparing. Yeah. And that was so transformative right. for me, like to have my eyes be open to understand how to look at policy and how to look at scripture. Right. And like not have it be determined by political loyalty or party loyalty, mm-hmm. but really understanding what does it mean to make policy for the marginalized, for the poor, for those who we are called to be ministering to. Right. So that was so transformational for me. You know, we went on some ministry, like missional trips by which for the first time in my life, I, I was able to serve and really interact and you know, be with the poor, those mm-hmm. who were living in spaces where it was, you know, dumpsters, and we spent the whole day, like, treating young kids with life, and, like, mm-hmm. combing it out, and, right. you know, it was just yeah. so, for me, this experience of, okay, like, what, what am I called to do? What am I called to be? What is the purpose of my life here? And, and I think, for me, as a young person who does have a lot of empathy, it was, so much a, a like formation of both my love for who Jesus is, but also like what my faith would look like on the ground. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And it was really interesting because um, when I went to school, 
the whole hot topic, like Christians always have freaking hot topics that they always want to like fight about. <laughs> um, and when I was freshman year going in, the hot topic was spiritual gifts. Okay. So growing up Pentecostal and being told as Pentecostals that Presbyterians don't know God, they only know Bible, they're very cold, mm-hmm. they don't have um, a deep relationship the way Pentecostals do, mm-hmm. you know, with God. That was my perspective going in, our perception going in. And then here I was where the people who were waking up at six in the morning and being very dedicated with their life and, and utilizing their intellect and their right. knowledge and, and their awareness and their learning to enhance the kingdom were all my Presbyterian friends. <laughs> but on the flip side of that, they were also all very like spiritual gifts are dead. There's no more mm. miracles. There's no like, and, and I came from this background where we literally had exorcisms and we were like, you know, I don't need to watch horror movies because I experienced it where people like manifestations happen, wow. like no one's faking it. Right, <laughs> right. Manifestations, like, wow. uh, and so, you know, I, it's just this, it was this weird journeying through all of that of what is, I, it's like, I always kind of went through this challenge of needing to identify where my faith lay, lies, who I am in the midst of all of this, where are my convictions, you know, what do I believe in? Um, and I'm so grateful. Um, I think junior year of college, I think it was my junior year of college, um, for our foundational three class, my professor, he was a pastor. Um, he was also so pivotal of very much saying you are going to have people on both sides of the, whatever issue it is, whatever it's like about end times, spiritual gifts, abortion, Mm -hmm the you know gay issue gay support environmentalism whatever it is and we didn't say all these issues at that time but Mm -hmm. basically he's like whatever issue you're going to have godly people on both sides of the spectrum and really it's about when especially when there are issues that there doesn't seem to be a clear answer right you need to know where your convictions lie and know where your stance is and do the research do the prayer like think it through be intentional but don't hold it and be dogmatic about it right, right. and he, he was so That's good it was such an essential piece of teaching of yeah. it's okay to have your conviction but it's right. not okay to be fundamental about it it's not right. okay to dig your heels into the ground because you could be wrong Right. you know, and, and, and just hurt hold that, yeah. Yeah. right? Like yeah. hold it with conviction, but hold it loosely because you just don't know. And I'm so grateful for that. And I think I've carried that through even now, 20 some years later, that is how I live. I'm so diehard in my convictions of what I believe because I do the work of researching it and right. you know looking through and prayerfully asking God, like, where does it please God? And where does God's heart beat? And where is God? heartbroken for what's happening in the world and yet knowing that I hold that because I could be wrong because I could misunderstand where I believe God is leading us towards and where God is working I mean without Judas we would have no Good Friday and Easter and and we as humans we look at that and we think well if only Judas wasn't born right, right. I love that line in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf says to Frodo you know we don't know Gollum's purpose yet and mm-hmm. It's just so monumental that Gollum at the end of it, without Gollum, the ring would never have been destroyed because Frodo couldn't do it at the end, right? And right. so 
I think that was even my posture when Trump ended up becoming elected as angry and as horrified and frustrated and burn it all down. I was <laughs> in the midst of all of it. My posture is like, like, what is actually God's ultimate will in the whole entire scheme of things? And that doesn't take away from the work we do on the ground on a daily basis to alleviate racism, alleviate poverty and alleviate the pain and, and all of the things that we do. It's not in vain, mm. but you know, what is the longevity of all of that? And so I think, you know, I'm so grateful for my upbringing and the training that I got at Biola. And then even going to graduate school at Talbot, which is a seminary extension at Biola, again, very conservative. Mm -hmm. But I strangely had great professors. Mm -hmm. um, I think if anything, I got more pushback um, from my classmates. And for those of you who may not know, like Biola or Talbot ended up accepting women in their Masters of Divinity program. And because of that, and they also hired a woman to teach on uh, their faculty um, in Christian education, and I think some even Bible classes. Um, because of that, that decision, John MacArthur left by Talbot and started Master's College. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't a lot. I was one in four women in the MDiv program, wow. but I was still allowed in the MDiv program, right? Mm -hmm. um, and my professors were all very supportive of me being there. Um, and if anything, it was my classmates, and in particular, my Korean immigrant church classmates, mm. my Korean male classmates who had the hardest time with me being there. Um, I loved I loved seeing their stumped faces when they're like, oh, are you in the MA program? I'm like, no, I'm in the MDiv program. I'm also <laughs> kicking your ass when it comes to like their GBA. Um, and... But I think, you know, my professors were folks who lived through World War II and Vietnam War and Korean War, and their their faith was so profound. Like, these people went through wars and, mm -hmm. and had such a deep ocean of faith um, yeah. that I had really never seen growing up Pentecostal. Right. Pentecostal leadership that I saw was very on fire, was very passionate. You know, but there wasn't this element of the gigantic roots of the tree being so deep in the earth mm -hmm. that no matter what's happening above, nothing is going to sway them. And a lot of my professors that I got to learn under at Talbot were like that. And so I'm so grateful for my my journey because I got the passion and the fervency and the in intimacy of my Pentecostal upbringing mm -hmm. um, and all the training in that. And yet through Biola and Talbot, I, I really built a solid biblical foundation um, to have the technique and awareness and understanding of how to exegete well and like make sure my hermeneutics are on point and like, you know, really understanding the context of what all of what is happening scripturally. Um, right. So I'm really grateful for all of that, the nuances of insanity because Talbot is very dispensational. Uh -huh. So everything is through the eyes of Israel, which is why, you know, for me, when I first started meeting white people and they were like, oh yeah, Jesus is white. <laughs> like pastors, pastors who were saying that, I was like, what <laughs> trash school did you go to? <laughs> like, it was so bizarre to me because everything at Talbot was through 
the covenant of Israel was all through the fulfillment of the prophecies of the mm. Old Testament through that. Right. And so it was really, really fascinating for me. Um, and then, you know, my, the other most pivotal class for me was my gospel, my exegesis of the gospels class with mm. Dr. Wilkins, who mentored Tommy Gibbons at Fuller. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that I think for me was the first time, and this is during the time when mega churches and, and seeker friendly churches like Willow and Saddleback and, mm-hmm. you know, all of that was at the peak. Um, mm-hmm. And it was all about these gigantic congregations. Um, and that was the marker of like Christianity or whatever. And that was the big debate that was happening. And you know, reading through the Gospels, like really digging through the exegesis of all of it, I was like, oh my God, we're the Pharisees of today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, I think the first, I mean, it was probably slow progression of, of, you know, marination, but that was the straw that kind of really broke me out of conservatism and like, and evangelicalism, ironically, right? Because <laughs> yeah. Right, like actually going and, and doing exegesis of the Gospels, I was like, the evangelical church has effed this all up. Like, mm. we're not at all doing the things that the Gospel is, that Jesus is telling us to do in the Gospels. Right, right. Um, and so that began my question. So this was 20 years ago, like, what are we doing with the least, the lost, and the last? What are we doing with the LGBT community? Why are we ostracizing them? Why are, mm-hmm. like, all of these questions started coming up of, like, this is not what church is supposed to be. Like, this is not what Jesus called us to be. Um, and it was, it was a 10-year journey of feeling like I was in the wilderness, like John the Baptist screaming out at, like, mm-hmm. nobody and, like, nobody caring. Um, mm. and people thinking I was crazy. Mm. Um, it was like 10 years of that, of, wow. of just feeling like this void. And then like Donald Miller's book started coming out. Rob Bell started coming out, like all these people. And I was just like, oh my God, I've been shouting this for like 10 years, <laughs> getting fired from church, like <laughs> for having these convictions. And like this whole movement started, like, I, and I, it felt so encouraging and like, validating that I wasn't crazy like I wasn't this heretic out here like being insane you know and that like I got it all wrong but I started slowly finding people who were like no we've been also wandering the desert and it was like everyone kind of started merging out of the wilderness together is what Mm. I felt like that's good so I have like a few follow-up questions but specifically <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've been like trying to write them down quietly so you don't hear me <laughs> typing um, <laughs> so you as you're in, the, in this last part that you were just sharing about um, how thankful you were or you are for Biola and yeah for all those experiences where you did feel in in some way alone or you did feel in some way crazy or alone in the wilderness but as you reflect on it like you do you have so much grace and you are so um yeah you have such like a positive outlook to that time when I'm when it was in many ways a lonely time and you know obviously it wasn't only lonely like there were great times so how did you get in your journey from a place of oh my gosh like I'm just so pissed off at how you know whatever (laughs) or like the you know the fundamentalism or you know, the fact that there were four women and I'm sure not everybody was on board or, you know what I'm saying? Like, 
Yep. How has your journey been um, of just being able to see God's work in that and the beauty in that and be thankful and be, you know, just be so gracious? Because I know so many people who are in this journey of, you know, reflecting on their past or, and even myself trying not to be pissed off at, you know, you lied to me for all those years, you know, like that's how (laughs) I felt, (laughs) you know, like you, so how did you get there? How has been your journey of, I guess, maybe forgiveness? I don't know if that's the right word or however you want to articulate that. If you want to talk a little bit about that journey. It's a fantastic question. Um, I think part of it is, I think part of it is my personality um part of it is the upbringing my mom Mm. instilled in me which is um both of that combined is very much I think a perspective of everything has the good and bad to it everything Mm. has a strength and weakness again a very nine answer I know (laughs) but (laughs) um I, I think I really I believe that for all of all of the things that I acknowledge that Talbot and Viola was lacking. Um, my friend asked me this. He also went to the school seminary with me. And, you know, years later, he then did his doctorate at Fuller. And he was like, do you feel like we were way behind coming into Fuller World? And I said, yes. And I am, I am sad for that. But mm. on the other side, there's always something to be learning. Oh, right. right? And on the other side of that, yes, we're behind. I'm like, I feel that it's always easy to go left mm. than it is to build a foundational structure mm. that you could decide to tear apart, right? Like mm. the land and the foundation has to be good, even if you decide to go crazy with the building structure that mm. you're going to build upon that. I see. Um, mm. And so I think for me, I'm grateful for the the methodologies and the teachings. Um, like I I speak with full conviction when I've heard even at Fuller, like how people have gone through their Greek classes at Fuller. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit like judgmental because <laughs> as much as I didn't do well in Greek because I had two full-time jobs trying to get myself through my MDiv program, mm-hmm. like they didn't joke around at Talbot about your Greek. Like right. it was 40 plus hours a week that right. you dedicated to really diving in and understanding like what is the original cultural context right and there was so much stress of that so even if um the perspective of the faculty member was teaching something they would themselves acknowledge their own bias and say but what you as students need to do is go to the original context and like Mm -hmm. understand what the author's intent was like I mean that was so deeply drilled into us that like I didn't actually have to deal with I think the white supremacy stuff that I was I'm now starting to realize going through some social theology like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know um understanding and and various different theological perspectives because yes unfortunately we still learned from white colonial people and like who we read from and who like was actually doing the exegesis writings that we were reading from right but the the foundational teaching was I took I already innately understood to take all of what was I was reading with a grain of salt because Mm -hmm. these people even though it wasn't spoken overtly like these people are white males from Europe so therefore they can't fully understand there's like a deep 
seed that was planted because I'm like at the end of the day. So like at the end of the day, they're white men from Europe. Right. Right, So when I started really diving into black theology and all these other things, and they're like, this perspective is so biased skewed and not correct. I was like, of course it's not. Like it was so Mm -hmm. not a difficult transition for me to have to make because my, the foundational teaching from Talbot that I am so grateful for is that everything is about the author's intent which Mm -hmm. they're very Jewish (laughs) they're very like you know not from the modern context we're in right now and so Mm -hmm. I think the deconstruction that I have had to do wasn't like a hundred percent fully I said Chuck now all of my educational background Mm -hmm. um and so I think the anger as much as there is I think I'm not as angry as I am lamenting that I mm-hmm. wish that I could have been more, I would have had more time in my youth to have done the readings that I would love to do right now, mm-hmm. which is justice work and all of that stuff. But there wasn't a full blown even conversation happening around this topic matter, you know, when I was at seminary. And so mm-hmm. I think part of my feeling of not being angry is is this trust that the process has been exactly where God has needed me to be. And this is my individual journey. So, you know, I fully empathize and understand with others who've needed to do way more deconstruction because of the schools that they've gone to or the context that they've grown up in. Um, But I think for me, it's been this process. And so now I feel... If anything, I'm not angry, but I'm a bit frustrated that I I feel like my book stack to read is so gigantic yeah. um, mm-hmm. because I haven't had the education for where I would love to be right now, if right, that makes right, sense. Right. But I'm so grateful for the foundational teachings and, and you know, background that I have had. And so... I think for me, I always have this tension of holding both and, which is very Eastern. Mm-hmm, it's very, mm-hmm. you know, Korean and Asian of this, like, yes, I lament and I'm angry that I didn't get to have that. But also both and, you know, I did get to have so much as well that I'm seeing other folks who are doing amazing justice work not have the background that I that right. I have. And so, yeah. And even talking to pastors who have gone to different seminaries of like, they just didn't get any exegetical training. They didn't get any, you know, work through reading through the Greek um, and and Hebrew, which I was terrible at Hebrew, but um, you know, like, and I, I feel for them. And I'm so, every time I meet pastors who are like that, where they're just kind of off the cuffing with their English, you know, and Mm -hmm. going based on that, I'm like, course you would have bad theology <laughs> like <laughs> you weren't trained properly to try to understand how to right. have good theology um yeah and so every time I'm, I'm in that encounter or in that kind of conversation um as much as I've had to do the deconstruction I'm so grateful like it just makes me go back to being grateful for the hard work even though along with that was the experience of being the only woman like you know or mm. being what, what few women or whatever all these things and so right. I think that's where the both and tension comes in of yes I I wish I could have gone to a different school I wish you know again looking back now on my CV Pepperdine on my CV would be amazing right but mm-hmm. also along with that of you know 
then I wouldn't have all that I have now. So it's yeah. kind of, yeah, a no, both and lived in tension. Right. No, and I think that that's, that's good. I think you're right. I, it's funny because when I first got to Fuller, I felt the same way. I was like, I'm so behind. Like I, you know, like there's so much that I don't know. And I actually think it was Joyce, um, Joyce Del Rosario that she was like, cat, mm-hmm. like you, she's like, you can speak the white man's language. And that's like a huge, so that's something that a lot of people can't do. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, like that really helped because it's yeah. true. Like, you know, I did, I did have so much of that under my belt that when I got to, um, when I got to Fuller, like I was, you know, there was so much that I knew or I, I guess cared about at one point, you know, like, for example, one of my nerdiest yeah. things now that I'm, I love, love, love talking about Second Temple Judaism. And I love, love, love talking about atonement theories. And that's something yeah. that just people around me are just not talking about those things. But I yeah. think that they're so foundational. Like, I genuinely think yeah. like, the reason why our theology or, or much of theology is so just so poor and so is because of poor atonement theories like you hold yeah. to you know like very basic like things that people have been believing that they don't even know they believe like I had a conversation right. with a girl that um I used to um like I used to mentor or whatever when she was in high school and and I was saying something like we were talking about how how she's always feeling so guilty and like all of this and and I said well you know I think that 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 the foundation of that is because you have a, a poor view of atonement, you know, like penal substitution, you know, and I started going off. She's like, I don't even know what that means. And I'm like, right. I'm like, okay, do you believe that? Like for, you know, like God, God killed Jesus because he had to, because he had to satisfy, you know, like satisfy his wrath. And he only loves you because he had to murder his son. Yeah. Okay. That feeds into <laughs> your guilt <laughs> like that, you know, but that's like yeah. language that a lot of people, like they don't even know they believe that. Right. Like they don't, right. people don't know that that there's another way to understand the cross or another way to understand what happened on the cross, you know? So anyway, going back to what you're saying, yeah, I totally, and I think that that's been a little bit of my journey as well is now looking back, like now with time, right? Because you need time. (laughs) But now with time, being able to look back and say, oh, okay, like I am thankful for those moments or for for those small details where I'm able to understand like why I believe this way or what the context of this is you know, and be really nerdy in those aspects to then be able to translate it even. Yeah. And it's like this, even like with atonement theory, they don't, and so many pastors that like I've met, they don't even know the church history of the progression of how right, right, we right. come to be right now, you right. know? And I'm like, how do you not know that? Like, how do you not ask right. how we got here? Right, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, is that not a paper that you've had to write? Because I've had to write five. was <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, I, don't, I just don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, funny. yeah. That's it's good. Funny. So I had another follow-up mm-hmm. question. Now, this is from, like, the beginning of your story. And I'm just curious if there is anything that you want to follow up with that. And feel free if you don't. But your prayer, so when you went into ministry, your prayer was, um, you know, or I guess you felt God tell you, (laughs) follow, or what was it, like, go into ministry or follow me or or whatever, and I'll save your life for me and I will save your dad. Yeah, give give your life for me and I will save your dad. What was that second part of that like? Like, you ended up moving to LA with your dad and that, just that journey? I mean, you can give me like oh a snippet gosh. or you don't have to go into all the details or whatever you feel comfortable sharing. But I just thought that was so interesting. Yeah. You know, I'll save your dad. Okay. And then. Yeah. 
and again, right, like who's to know how much of that is my own understanding right. of what salvation even means. Right, um, right, right, right. Yeah. And and I'm I'm again so not dogmatic about it. Like I have my perspective uh-huh. and I have my understanding and awareness, but I I say I feel like if we end up going and meeting the Lord you know, in whatever format yeah. <laughs> our our beings are going to take or our souls and our spirits, whatever you want to chalk it up to be. Oh, there's so many like asterisk parameters of like, whatever this is, whatever this is, right? right. I, I just feel like the moment awareness comes of, of whatever afterlife is going to happen, it's just going to be like, oh, we got everything all wrong. Right, like, right. Everything was wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's hilarious. Um, So... I, you know, I just know, I think through the journey from my mom and I calculated from when my mom really started praying for my dad, um, cause he's an alcoholic and then he became a drug um, addict or both. It, it estimated it's been about a 40 year journey it's in particular mm-hmm. for my mom. And then I was young. So 30 years for me. Um, mm-hmm. I just have to say by the end of all of this, that like my perspective of the Israelites journeying for 40 years in the desert mm. has taken on a whole entire personal meaning wow. because we read the Israelites in a couple of pages, mm. you know, and we get so judgy about them. These mm. fickle, fancy Israelite people who can't have their ish together, mm-hmm. that they're building idols and they can't just be patient and all that. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> 40 years is so effing long to wait to get into the freaking promised land, right? right? So obviously they're going to be like, why the hell are we here in this hot environment? Like I am a nectar, okay? And so imagine setting up your tent and you finally get it all like, fashioned up the way you get kind of comfortable and then the freaking cloud moves again and you like have to pack everything all up and like move it again and in the beginning the first couple of days you're probably like oh my god there's manna on the ground in right. the morning. 40 years there was manna on the ground that's 40 years of bland unleavened bread that you're just chomping on <laughs> I don't even like eating the same food from Chick-fil-A every day, okay? But, like, we're starting to get sick of our, like, our repeat Trader Joe's frozen food right. during quarantine time. Imagine doing that times 40 years. So, right. you know, like, it's this whole entire perspective that waiting is so exasperating. Waiting is so painful. Um, and we, my mom and I have made so many mistakes in the midst of it. You know, that moment happened. I came to LA. I thought, zip, bam, boom. God was going to save my dad. I'm going to be able to give a massive testimony all across the country and the world (laughs) about how miraculous, you know, God helped and saved my dad. And he's not an alcoholic anymore. Now he's doing dental ministry to the poorest of all poor communities. Mm -hmm. Like, I I mean, I had envisionments and fantasies and dreams of how God was going to fulfill this. Mm. you know and right. and none of it came to pass mm. none of it like it it was literally like the israelites where the last generation died and the wow. new generation went into went into the promised land right. mm. and you know at the end of it my dad passed away in 2008 um mm. and it it was <laughs> to say it 
crudely, it was almost like a fart in the wind, mm. you know, mm-hmm. to say it spiritually, it truly was miraculous and beautiful, but it was so quiet. It wow. was so not sensational. He was sober for a year, but it's because he got dementia and it was like the demons that had been in him his and surrounding him his whole life knew that he was at the end of his life and left Mm -hmm. and so my mom said she walked in and he said hello to her in the hospital bed one of the night one of the days because my dad not only got dementia he had a couple he was like I mean he had few accidents because of the dementia and then he got lung cancer which mm. is so ironic that he didn't get liver cancer right. you know and but he had no pain during his lung cancer like wow. he had lung cancer for six months and then he passed yeah. and he he started losing weight and so he was like malnourished because he wasn't eating all of a sudden the last like two months of his life um and he was in the hospital and my mom walked in and she said he said hello to her with these bright eyes and she said she kind of stopped in the doorway and she said it was like this 19 year old self was saying hi to me like I hadn't seen that spirit and that energy from him since he was a kid Mm -hmm. and we really felt that like you know at the end I asked him several times you know and every time I say it or I share this I get choked up because I I asked him you know do you know how much Jesus loves you you know, do you love Jesus? And he said, of course, which he never has said my wow. entire life with him. Like he'd always argue something about heaven being in state of your mind and mm. like, yeah. <laughs> you know, all these other philosophical things that he tried to like escape from and escape into. And it was just so pure. He said, wow. I know Jesus loves me. And yes, I love Jesus. And it was just, it was just, I can only say pure. I, I, wow. that, that's the only word to describe it. Mm-hmm. And even when he passed that day, the nurse said she came in and she's obviously she works in an elderly home. And so she's seen so much death. Um, she said, I've never witnessed somebody passing on so peacefully. Wow. It's, she's like, it's not like in the movies where they pe- mm-hmm. pass on and their faces are all peaceful. Like she's like, that never happened. Wow. But that's how your dad passed away. And, mm-hmm. you know, she said, I, I walked in, I, I thought he was sleeping. So I was about to walk out and I looked and I felt something not okay. Mm-hmm. And she said she had checked on him 20 minutes before then she came in for something else. And she checked and she said within 20 minutes he had passed on, but he looked like he was sleeping. And he, wow. when he, I have pictures, he looks like he has a somewhat of a smile on his face, wow. right? Yeah. And so yeah. It, it was so peaceful. But again, it wasn't this sensational testimony that I thought, even when I moved in with him nine years ago, um, you know, I, I had this massive a spiritual encounter. I was running away from God for about five years because, again, you know, you build a calf. You build an iron calf when you're in the midst of praying for something and it's not <laughs> happening, right? I was just like, F you to God again. Here I am again. I'm like, go away. Leave me alone. I'm doing my thing. I'm there serving in ministry. You do your thing, God. Like, where are you at? Um, and I had this massive spiritual encounter and, like, went to live with my dad to try to do an intervention. And I thought, again, I thought, zip, bam, boom. Within two years, my dad will get saved, and not at all. Like, he yeah. ended up continually escalating down. He lost all his money yeah. by making stupid decisions. Like, mm-hmm. we put me on the title of the house to protect him. 
he fraudulently removed me from the title of the house. So he lost everything. Oh um, we scrounged money somehow miraculously. We got like a small thing and he died penniless, like mm. with nothing because he had so much amassed debt because of his, his addictions mm. um, and people stealing money from him. And it was, it was like we cleaned up house the last, three years of before he passed away mm. and so I have no standing on the stage crazy amazing miraculous supernatural testimony right mm. of of this promise that God gave to me 27 years ago and yet I know at the end of it whatever afterlife looks like whatever it will be um God has kept his end of the bargain my dad mm. was sober for a year and wow. his love for jesus and declared how much he knew jesus loved him mm. and yeah. i can only know in faith uh, like that god showed up mm. and it it seems to be such a theme in my life for how god shows up that i think you know we we tell these fancy schmancy stories of god's miracles and I was sharing with someone, I really have this strong conviction that mir God's miracles are the fact that we don't give up, that we show mm. up, that we continue to love, that we continue to forgive, yeah. and we continue to move on, and we continue to laugh and have joy and celebration in the midst of lament and mourning, and we get up in the morning, and we say we're going to do this all over again, and we hold each other's hands, and we walk together like that's God's miracle showing up every day, right? Um, so and God in the midst of all of that, manifesting who God is through the energy, through the universe, through the connections, mm, all yeah. of it. Um, and we, we want these miracles to happen. And sometimes they do. And bless those who get to experience that, yeah. you know? But for those of us who the next generation just mildly ends up walking into the promised land without fighting this gigantic battle. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it just happens. It's a little disconcerting, I think, because we love that movie star right. ending, but it's this emerging of, okay, so then now we're transitioning, I guess, into this next stage of life. Right. Um, what does that look like? And, right. and that's a miracle, I think. Mm, I love that. I think that's beautiful amen to that and so what has been your journey of because this is something that I I run into a lot in probably just like the internet and, and spaces like that of people who did grow up very Pentecostal and then kind of come into this place of yeah maybe everything isn't this big kind of like what you're articulating right like yeah maybe things are very unordinary within the, or, or very ordinary within the unordinary yeah. or you know and so how has that like your journey I guess of like deconstruction or or decolonization or your journey of kind of coming out of one space and trying to inhabit another one how have you reconciled that with your Pentecostal faith and I know that you did articulate some of that now kind of coming into this like okay things are like sometimes it is just very average and that even yeah. in itself is still a miracle which I think is so special and so beautiful but I have just seen so many people 
mm-hmm. not see it that way. You know, kind mm-hmm. of um, kind of go back to like what we were saying, whether it's be, you know, get angry or feel disillusioned yep. and never come out of that disillusionment. So, yeah. So how do you reconcile like the supernatural, um, you know, like speaking in tongues, like just yep. miracles aspect of God or, or what you experience as a child and exorcisms and then now in your yep. current beliefs? Great question. Oh my gosh. And there's been so much journey of healing in that. Um, I think again, I'm so grateful for Biola and for some of the folks that I got to meet that really showed what a stable faith looks like, a mm-hmm. steady, stable faith. That's good. Um, and, you know, a, I do appreciate having experienced, you know, craziness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there are stories, especially overseas, when you do missional work. Um, right. I think there's a rawness that happens when technology is removed right. that connects us to the earth and connects us to the energies and the spirits that exist that I know we don't acknowledge um, or aren't aware of in in our modernity and in our in our modern mm-hmm. way of life. Um, right. And Dr. Jennings talks about that. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate, I think my Korean background, my Korean heritage that it's already like is very accepting mm-hmm. of those spiritual elements of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my Pentecostal background, I'm so grateful for that because I am a sensitive person. I'm an INFJ, I'm the Myers-Briggs, you know, being a nine, all these things like I have a sensitivity towards that. Mm -hmm. And yet I think, you know, the foundational training that I had allowed me to do the both and again and marry it. But through the process, oh, there has been so much trauma because, you know, not only my personal stories of being disappointed by God and bad Pentecostal theology like (laughs) what does it mean when God doesn't show up right and and I've had friends who have grown up at Pentecostal church where their classmate their high school classmate had leukemia and then they all came to terms like really prayerfully understanding what God's will was that this their classmate their friend wasn't going to be saved and like praying them off to be with the Lord you know know peacefully and then their pastor coming in and yelling at them and reprimanding at them Mm -hmm. that they didn't have that their faith was so weak and pathetic that they wouldn't have the the strong faith to heal their friend right and like the Mm -hmm. trauma of that of like the just oh god it's so horrible it's just such bad theology Um, you know, a pastor's wife believing she had the gift of prophecy and, and telling a woman in her congregation that God spoke to her and she needs to get off her diabetes medication, you know, because she needs to walk in faith that God's going to heal her from her diabetes. And, you know, this woman ends up like listening and obeying that because God spoke through the pastor's wife. And then she ends up dying because her blood sugar levels were all out of whack. Um, you know, like wow. myself of having grown up, you know, from anything so stupid as to thinking like I left my keys at home and I'm locked out of the house and it's 20 degrees outside. And like I was told in scripture that if I had the face of a mustard seed, mm-hmm. then I could will anything to happen. <laughs> like my prayers will be answered. And so I 
try to magically perform, you know, the door to open. And so I could be inside my warm house. And I'm like, face of a mustard seed, face of a mustard seed, repeating that over and over again. Like it's a Harry Potter chant layer, right? Like it's so ridiculous. And then being angry at God or being shamed that like it didn't work. So obviously my faith is not even as small as a mustard seed or God sucks. Like, one of the two choices here is all we're getting, right? It's me being, my ass being outside in the 20 degrees, like, cold. <laughs> so, oh my like, there's just so many of those, like, crazy stories. And I think, you know, processing through, like, for myself, really, like, you know, I ended up being, I, I got raped by my senior pastor from oh the gosh, church sorry. in high school that I grew up with. Um, my parents their marriage didn't my prayer didn't get answered they didn't like reconcile you know while I was growing up my dad wasn't getting saved I I got fired from church even though I was like doing my best like all of these things by which God didn't show up you know Mm -hmm. and for a while it was like okay well there's going to be meaning behind this there's going to be some reason you know for Mm -hmm. all of it and I finally ended up snapping and that was, that was my desert journey where I told God to basically fuck off. Like, Mm. and I, I went through five years of my desert wandering and, and I told God screw off and he did like Mm. God went silent on me for five years. You know, me who always had felt the presence of God in some way, shape or form um, felt very connected to God all of that and and when I started coming out of it I I really almost became agnostic Mm. and I went through this whole rabbit hole of what if everything that I grew up learning was all propaganda was all craziness in my mind every one of us is crazy what if it was all coincidences right and I'll say one I, I I really have to acknowledge and believe it was the Holy Spirit that I I was one step away from jumping off the cliff and declaring myself an atheist mm. and then as I was slowly ever so cautiously making my way away from the cliff <laughs> my friend I didn't watch signs in the theater <laughs> I was sharing I did and I did go back and started attending church service and and my friend said oh my god we were sharing about my struggles or whatever and she he was like, you should watch the movie Signs. And I was like, isn't that about stupid aliens? <laughs> and he was like, no, I know, I know. It's about stupid aliens. But really, I feel like you're going to connect to this movie. And, of course, the movie is about why and where is God in the midst of pain and, and all of that. And how, in the end, somehow, by some craziness, all of these quirks and struggles that this this character, Mel Gibson, has and like it all kind of comes together at the end, right? Mm-hmm. In a crazy, weird way. Um, I was a bawling mess, obviously, by the <laughs> end. Um, and, and and really, again, started existentially asking questions of like, okay, then what is prayer? What does it all mean? I felt guilty if I could even begin to pray again after having really gone off the deep end in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I ended up having this spiritual awakening as I discovered my dad was doing drugs. I went home. I really didn't even want to confront my dad. Um, Mm. That was a whole other story. But that evening after I confronted him and found out, I had the most 
powerful spiritual experience. Only way I can ever, ever describe it is I felt like Neo at the end of the Matrix, (laughs) where he resurrects Mm -hmm. and he could see everything in code. Like he was not the same person, right? Um, That's what it felt like. I I had my Damascus experience where I went to another dimension almost. Um, Not almost. I feel like I did. Like I... I was able to see things that I, I would like go up to people, be able to be like, you know, knowing what I need to pray for them. Like, no, wow. it was just so craziness. Yeah. And I didn't do the prophecy thing, obviously, until somebody got their diabetes medication, but, <laughs> but it was, it was very, very spiritual. And, wow. and the enormity of God, like where it says in Isaiah, where the, the hem of God's robe fills the temple I experienced that, the enormity of who God is. And in the midst of that, I read Mother Teresa's Come Be My Light book. Mm -hmm. Her section, because really it was her letters crying out for help because the moment she dedicated her life to go to Calcutta, Jesus went silent on her. This woman who every day had conversations all day long with God, God went completely silent on her for the next 55 years of her life like I went through five years of darkness and I it was it was painful for me but that was of my own volition like I shut the door (laughs) God and God said okay I'll shut up I'll leave you alone and show you what darkness looks like you know here's a woman who so faithfully decided to say yes and then God rewarded her by going dark and, you know, the la- the priest who she said finally counseled her and gave her some really amazing um, advice and, and really helped her understand in the scheme of it all that the darkness she's experiencing from God, that God is there, mm. but the loneliness and the isolation is with the people who she ministers to, how they feel every day in the real world, in the actual world, yeah. um, or quote-unquote what we call real world. Mm. Um, you know... Like for her to be alleviated from the burden, but to know that she was so cherished and looked upon by God that God would trust her to be faithful even in the midst of darkness and silence. I was a mess. Oh, like, so yeah. you know, I, I was, it was just so profoundly moving. Gosh, yeah. And so I think in the midst of that, like having spiritual experiences and, 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 in my own personal existence experiencing God but yet also being so, so cautious and careful because I've seen the underside of the belly of what can happen when you become arrogant and right. prideful and right. and pompous about spirituality and what you think can define spirituality right like right. again those who were Pentecostal I bet you would have said to the disciples your lack of faith is why Jesus is on the cross. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah, yeah. the arrogance of that, the arrogance of Job's friends right, right. to say to him, this is why you're being punished. Right. When they know nothing like right. about anything. Um, yeah. That I think I'm grateful for the humility that God's been allowed, to, that I've been allowed to be privy to. Um because I've seen the, the dark side of it. And so really when it came to that, um, what you asked earlier about the decolonization of, you know, like coming from Talbot, if anything, I needed to forgive the Pentecostal church for the trauma and the harm that I experienced mm. 
from some of the shame and the the guilt of yeah. of what I was expected to believe God to be my circus genie. Right, right, right. Um, and that that is not true because shit happens in your life. And so when you have these moments where asking where is God to be able to sit and lament and say, I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to pan out. And I don't know if, if anything will ever even amount to answering why, mm. you know, and to be okay with that, yeah. I think has been such a pivotal part of, of it all. Yeah. Again, so grateful that it giving me this experience to even be intimate with God, but yeah. I don't know if I could ever go back to being in a Pentecostal church. Mm. I did preach at a girls' camp um, for one month. I went every weekend. They had a Latina girls' camp. And it had been the first time I really was in interacting with Pentecostals in a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was like a throwback because they did the calling out and, and all of that. Yeah. It was craziness because I have this way of doing a prayer thing when I speak at camp, at kids' camps and stuff, um, at, at youth camp. I have this prayer time that I do. But I give so many available parameters. Like, if you want to cry out, that's okay. If you want to sit in silence, that's okay. If you want to cry, that's okay. If you right. don't cry, that's okay. Like, yeah. I give so much range <laughs> because <laughs> of my own personal experience. And I'm right. like, I don't want any of you to feel like this is the way to pray, right, right, right. Um, <laughs> you know, to God. And it's so funny because what I do, it really kind of ranges. It goes sometimes from like 30 minutes of prayer time as a group to like four and a half hours like these high schoolers pray together for like four and a half hours um Mm -hmm. and it's it's just so wonderful like Mm -hmm. to see it happen and so for me you know I'm grateful for my background because I'm comfortable when it's a four and a half hour prayer Mm -hmm. but I also want to make sure because of my experience and what I've learned on the negative side to make sure those four and a half hours isn't this if I didn't cry Mm -hmm. then I didn't really pray which is how I grew up you know, my Pentecostal upbringing. Like, if snot wasn't running down your face, right. <laughs> down your nose, then, like, you didn't do a good job to pray that day. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, oh, it's man. so toxic. Oh, that's good, though. Thank you for that. Um, well, something that I was going to ask, and I think that it does play a role in this, um, and this will be my last question. What do you think, or how do you think, or if you just want to explain in general how you being Korean, um, being a second generation immigrant, like the, how does that tie into all of this? Does it or doesn't it? Or if you just want to share a little bit about your experiences as a second generation Korean? Yeah. Oh, that's a loaded question. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, a light question. Um, I think. I'm so grateful. I think, you know, growing up, obviously, especially in the 80s and 90s, in a space that wasn't predominantly, that was very white mm-hmm. in, in the East Coast, in particular, even if I had Chinese friends, you know, we were all still very white, you right. know, and mm-hmm. I was very proud to be a banana, very proud. Like, I would ask all the time, like, you, I'm different from those Korean girls, right? Those K-Town mm-hmm. girls, like, I don't give off that same K-Town girl vibe, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, I'd go somewhere. I'd love being the only Asian. Um, I love being unique. I, mm-hmm. I very much had to really, really process and decolonize, like, why mm-hmm. being exotic wasn't good. Why being mm-hmm. unique in that way amongst white people wasn't uh, a good thing, you know? Right. Like, all, all of that, I had to process through it. But in the midst of processing through, I've also, I think, really um, 
enjoyed connecting to my Koreanness. I mean, mm-hmm. on the downside, you know, it makes my mom right, which just aggravates the bejesus out of me. My whole life, she's like, you're never going to get away with it. You're Korean. Your eyes are Korean. Your face is Korean. Your facial structure. And I'm like, oh, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear this. No, I want to be as white as white can be, right? Um, and yet I'm like, dang it. She's right. I'm Korean. And, you know, she used to always say, God created you to be Korean for a reason. And God's got plans for you and, and all of that. And I hated hearing that growing up. But uh-huh. now, you know, I think I'm so I'm so grateful for the young people who really embrace um, accepting their ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. It's helped us, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. It's helped us who are Gen X a process through and be accepting and loving and embracing of our of our identities um, and our heritage and our culture. I think my greatest lament is that I don't speak and write the language. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't grow up. My mom raised me to be very white. She cooked me white people food. Um, mm. I didn't eat kimchi mm. because my mom was worried she had stomach problems and my dad had stomach problems. She was like, oh, eventually she'll eat it. And then I never did. Um, oh, yeah. And I only started eating Korean food and kimchi because at church, the Pentecostal church that I grew up in, my mom was the organist and the choir director. And so she would be at church till freaking five o'clock, six o'clock, right? <laughs> and there's nothing to eat. I didn't have a car. Everybody bailed. And like, <laughs> All that was left was the food that they would cater or cook in the church, and it was Korean food. So I'm mm. like, starving. <laughs> so I'm going to start eating Korean food. And my grandma came to visit. She saw me eating kimchi. She was like, oh, my gosh, you're eating kimchi. You're a human now. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, so I think even embracing that, going to college, being in a very white college, I get back from and my mom was like, what do you want to eat? And I was like, I want to eat kimchi again. And she was like, what alien has abducted my child? <laughs> um, so I think it's been a slow progress. But and, and working in a Korean immigrant church predominantly in L.A. where I was around kids that were all like, KP, KP, Korean pride, Korean pride. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is going on? And they would listen to Korean music, and watch Korean dramas. <laughs> You know, all these things that I ran away as far away I, as I could, um, you know, starting to be in that environment, the young people influence you. Um, right. And being a youth pastor around all of these kids that were very proud to mm. be Korean and didn't want to be around white people. Um, if anything, I was like, okay, well, how can we all figure out how to get along? So you don't want to be racist again. <laughs> against other people as well right um and the whole other side of koreans being so ethnocentric i think it was this other reaction of assimilation like a reaction against assimilation um right and i i really i was proud of that um and i think you know as the pendulum is kind of swinging back into this whole realm as, as we're talking about racial justice work and you know all of that like what does it mean? It's continually a question I ask. What does it mean that I, as a Korean American woman who has connection to my heritage, who's grown up with a subconsciousness of like spirituality in my Easternness mm-hmm. that I'm having to really analyze and, and break down and understand my background by which there is connection to the spiritual realm um, mm-hmm. with how even Christianity came about in Korea, like, 
being aware of all that and understanding how that forms my faith development and that that faith has value that I bring to the table has been Mm. such a healing process for me because I feel sometimes like I'm still adopting other people's faith because I'm assimilating Mm. and I'm having to daily remind myself no like I bring a unique perspective to the table as a woman as a Korean woman, as a woman of color, you know, as a Gen Xer, right. as an East Coaster, as, you know, like all of these things I bring to the table. And there are other people who have my story, yes, you know, but, and it's not a competition at all, but it's like understanding that this perspective of, of God is what I bring to the table. And I only can enhance and help the community right. as we are diving in and understanding God better in our journeys through this thing called life. How can I help others be more connected to God in a certain sense that like others have helped me to be connected to God. Right, right. You know, I was watching Marie Kondo this past week because I was in a funk with this quarantine stuff um, and cleaning really soothes my soul. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it was funny because my friend who's half Japanese, half Korean, she was actually speaking um, like irritatingly about the element that Marie Kondo goes in and, and thanks the house and asks the house for permission. Um, mm-hmm. And she kind of does his meditation. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand because she is a Christian. She was talking about, I forget what it's called in um, Japan, it, but basically it's like the spiritual, it's almost, it's not like animism, mm-hmm. but it's, it's somewhat in that line. I forget what it's called. And while that is true, I was like also thinking that it's very, it makes sense to me as a Korean, like mm-hmm. we don't buy property with our front door facing North. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's superstitious and bad luck. Like that fortune comes into the house. Mm-hmm. I also don't ever want to buy a house with a staircase going straight out the front door because all your blessings are going to escape out of the door. <laughs> <laughs> like these are like subconscious things that you grow up with that your parents mm-hmm tell you right and and so when she the first moment she thanks the house and she said oh I want to enter and get permission I'm like this is so good for white people because you know again as Dr. Jennings said like white people and their whiteness with the commodification of land and property and like space and there's a disconnection spiritually when in actuality all these things have energy to them right um it totally makes sense to me um and that is an element that that understanding and awareness I bring to the table another example is a friend of mine has a cousin she's quote-unquote kooky and like into you know all this spiritual stuff or whatever Mm -hmm. um and she has a child and he bumped his head on the table and she said oh give the energy back right Mm-hmm. And he was like, what the hell is that? And she said, oh, everything has energy. And so when you bump into something, you basically have taken that energy and you give it back. You don't bruise and you don't feel pain. Hmm. And anybody else, I'm sure, who's very Western would listen to that and be like, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my <laughs> life, right? And yet, so I bruise like a peach, okay? Yeah, like me too. I first, and I'm the clumsiest, clumsiest, clumsiest person ever. So I'm bumping into everything and getting bruised all over the place. <laughs> And when I give, like, if I stub my toe and I touch the area that I stubbed it on and I give the energy back, you tap it, you tap your toe, like, back into that area. First of all, I'm telling you, you feel this flare-up of pain, feel the energy subside. Wow. And then I haven't had a bruise. I haven't had a bruise. No. Since I 
yeah, started doing any of that. So like anything that even like one time I bumped into something and it like cut my skin, that's how hard and it started swelling up. Right. So Mm -hmm. immediately within like what, five minutes, I would have gotten black and blue. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave it back. It took 10 minutes to give the energy back. That's how like hard I hit it. And, um, I never bruised up. I never pulled up. So like swelling went down and it just dissipates. And so like, I know people are going to hear this and they're going to think it's kooky and it's crazy and it's all like voodoo meditation stuff or whatever, but there's an element of Easternness that I am completely aware of and connected to. And that impacts how and influences how I connect to God, you know, um, and I'm aware of God and, and Jesus didn't grow up in a modern technological world there was a lot of spiritual stuff right. happening um so yeah, you know true. just to yeah. be aware of all of that and yeah. and it's important to know like that's why acupuncture isn't all about just needles it's about energy passing from the acupuncturist to the patient right and mm-hmm. like if you talk to really good acupuncturists they say going in the morning and getting treated is the best time because the energy of the acupuncturist is strong and it's mm. all rested up and because you're not just poking needles you are concentrating and you're healing like right. and that's what prayer is too like if you heal your hands on it it's really like my energy going to your energy mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah. um yeah and we we do that that's why touch is important hugs are important and and i think you know this element of modernity that we have where everything is just about resourcing and mm. it's not about connection mm. um with one another like is something that I think white westerners have lost and I say lost because I think you know some of the history with Celtics and Druids and and all of that there was a very deep connection with spirituality Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's why even white folks are obsessed with like horror movies and like spiritual stuff because there's like a an element to it which I'm like I don't need to watch horror movies I am very aware of what is about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But I think there's a, a desire and a call for that because there's so much loss of that connection. And so I think right. as a second gen Korean American, you know, kid of an immigrant whose parents were so very aware of what the world means spiritually and how the world connects to the world, connects to each other spiritually, that's definitely influenced me in my spiritual development. Yeah, that's so good. Going back to what you were talking about, like the the energy and and kind of giving the energy back and all that. I think it's so interesting because you're right, like Western, because even me, you know, like as we're all Westernized, right? So like even in our uh, initial like Western, when we hear those things, we want to like initially be like, well, no, wait, you know, or we want to like, you know, put put a stop to it or we want to um, kind of rationalize it. But I think that even in like thinking of it in a spiritual way, like, and I think that you were saying this, um, but it just made me think like, if we believe that that God is in everything, if like the divine is in everything, if God inhabits every space, and if God is, you know, like it, it only makes sense that, you know, like, God's energy would be, you know, like, we would have when we touch someone, when we um, engage with something, you know, that that is the divine through us and in us. And, and so, yeah. And so it's funny how it on the surface sounds kooky or it sounds, you know, but if you think about it through like a genuine Christian perspective, or even if you just think about it, you know, 
in what we believe theologically because that's the thing like and I think that this is an issue with colonial thinking and with westernized thinking there is such a disembodiment from everything and with everything everything is just completely and utterly disembodied and so when we like for for a western person or for you know someone embedded in colonial thinking to hear that it sounds crazy but then at the end of the day it's like well if you are an embodied person and if you believe like if you literally just believe the thing or if you embody the things that you like literally believe because that's the thing Mm -hmm. like we already believe these things we believe that god is everywhere and in everything and we believe that the holy spirit is in us and and if we say those things theologically but then when someone comes up to us and says like well just give the energy back and we're like whoa hold up right (laughs) you know (laughs) like "Uh uh-uh that's too far and it's like well i mean is it like you believe that theologically don't you you know so i just think that's really interesting and i do see that you know, I'm taking a, a class on post-colonialism right now. And that's mm. literally like so much of what we're talking about is like this identity crisis, this complete disembodiment. There is just a, a total disconnection in colonial thinking because of like, and, and Willie Jennings does like you, I know you've mentioned him quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. and he was huge for me in understanding that, like the connection yeah. to land, yeah. body, animal, persons, you know, like how we have this deep connection to animals, how we have this deep connection yep. to the land, like, you know, and so, yeah, it's just that it's that idea that we believe one thing, but we don't know how to live that out or articulate it in another way. And so things can we can say something with our mouths, but then turn around in the same way, say, no, that's weird. And that's kooky. And I'm not gonna like, that's devilish or whatever, you know, right. Um, so and it it's so I, I'm not, and I don't want to knock down, like, structure and, like, the, right. the, again, like, the gifting that Westernism brings, which is systems and structure. Like, I have a J personality. I'm very, I love structures and systems, right? Like, uh-huh. I visited a church, Pentecostal, um, and they were, like, singing uh, the Holy Spirit song, which, you know, if you go to a Pentecostal church, like, all they do is repeat the chorus over and over and over again for five hours, right? <laughs> and it just drives me batty crazy. And they were like, oh, don't we want to do this for, like, five hours and do worship? And I was like, no, I have to go to brunch, right? Like, <laughs> there's things I have to do today on my schedule. And so, like, but what you're saying, too, but the the downside of these structures and systems then becomes a limitation. Mm-hmm of putting God in a box, right? Or like mm-hmm. limiting God to this element by which you were saying theologically, you know, evangelicals in particular say God is everywhere in their language and what they sing in their songs and how they mm-hmm. speak to each other. But in actuality, God is everywhere is only limited to this little box that they have defined what God is right. everywhere in, right? Right, right, and, right? And so, and what you're saying too, what's hilarious is that, scientifically now with the understanding of quantum physics in the quantum realm i mean my husband was explaining quantum physics to me when we first got married and i was just like you're blowing my pentecostal mind out of the water because like this this just like removes all barriers if the if quantum physics is really understanding like the unknown and all of the gaps for what we have scientifically defined as a physical world, then obviously when scripture is talking about we're fighting, we're not fighting flesh and blood, but like the principalities, mm-hmm. like we're talking about all of this space that exists 
mm. within a certain realm that we cannot physically understand, mm. right? Mm. Because as humans, we're limited. Right. And it's just, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so it, it yeah. like does, it's not even goes, it doesn't even go against physics. It doesn't right. go against science. Because now the science world is finally catching up to God wow, and spiritual yeah. realm and right. being able to measure and see what's happening of like how things can pass through time without being limited by time, right? It's crazy. It's insanity. <laughs> it's just insanity. Yeah. I love it. Ooh. Yeah, that is, that's powerful. That's heavy it's, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, so this was such a good conversation. I'm, <laughs> I'm like so excited to share this conversation. And it's like, it's funny because I'm always like, I don't want to go over an hour. We're like literally like at an hour and a half. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> no, but I'm like, you know what? This is great. And it's like, what, special quarantine edition. So people have time. So I'm really, people have time. <laughs> yeah. I think, but no, um, this was so, so good. I'm so thankful for everything that you shared and for being just so honest and open and vulnerable. And yeah, and I'm always so appreciative 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 of um (laughs) (laughs) of people and conversations and spirituality that does hold the both and and that is perfectly comfortable and uncomfortable at the same time in the nuance and in the complexity and in the you know all of that because there is a level of comfort and there also is a level of um uncomfortability and I I'm always just I feel like you know, we need these voices, um, to kind of shake us, kind of shake us into being uncomfortable and shake us into being comfortable in the uncomfortable. And so I'm so, so thankful. And I know that everybody listening is going to be super blessed by this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for letting me babble on and on. (laughs) (laughs) No, you are 100% welcome. (laughs) And I'm sure we will, we'll chat, um, throughout this time. So (laughs) All right. I hope everyone stays safe and, you know, during the time of this quarantine and stays home even, and we're, we're all struggling through this together, but yes. stay safe and healthy. Yes. Amen. Thank you. Oh, and is there, um, is there anything that you want to share as far as like, um, anything you are currently like working on or if you want people to follow you anywhere, um, or if and there's anything that you, um, want to share? Um, everyone is more than welcome to follow me. I'm Irene M as in Michelle Cho, C-H-O on all social media platforms, um, including TikTok, which I have nothing to offer in TikTok. (laughs) Um, but I always say if you want like fun stuff, you mostly go to my Instagram. If you want insightful, more fleshed out, deep thoughts, you go to Facebook. If you want my ranting, angry trivial sometimes superficial stuff you go to twitter um mm-hmm. so there's different there are different elements that i express myself on different <laughs> platforms <laughs> love it 